So my understanding is that the first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. Right? Most of us have heard that before, and, and the reality is if we have compassion and we see somebody who's struggling with that, we look at the addict who is, who is struggling to pull themselves back up over tripping over nothing, and as they wipe the beer foam from their lips and declare, I don't have a problem, we think, oh, that's so sad, how can they not see that? And yet, when we look at one another, struggling to pull ourselves up by the world's means after tripping over the world's desires and fears, and as we wipe the grumbling and the blame and the doubt from our lips and declare, I don't have a problem, we respond with, oh, you sure don't, and neither do I. How do we not see that there's a problem. Because the reality is the patterns of this world have so formed us into their image, so formed us that we're typically utterly unaware of how culture, our family of origin, the people that I surround myself with, and my own sin have shaped and formed my perception, affecting how I view others, how I perceive life as a whole, and how I even interpret Scripture. Simply inserting more information into that system doesn't help because all that new information just gets fit into the pre-existing mold, right? That idea goes on that shelf. Those people go in that category. This verse is the one we downplay, and these verses are the ones that we emphasize, right? We need to change the way that we think, church. Not just a reboot, but a total change in the operating system as a whole. We need a metamorphosis. So look at Romans 12, 2 with me. We're going we're gonna to squeeze a lot out of half of one verse. Are you ready for this? So it says, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So one thing that's important to point out is this is not something that Paul is saying to lost people who he wants to see saved. This is a letter, and in particular, he starts this out by saying, brothers and sisters, in verse 1. So he's, this is a, not an evangelistic call. This is an urging to Paul's spiritual brothers and sisters. This is for the church, for you and me. And he's saying, do not be conformed. Do not fit into the mold or the pattern of this world. I know a thing or two about this, as it turns out, because before I went into vocational ministry, I was an elf, which might be surprising to you based on my stature, but uh, I made toys for a living. I worked for a commercial artist, and we sculpted toys, action figures, cookie jars, Happy Meal toys, all those kinds of things. The artist who, who owned the studio that I worked for used to refer to us as hired thumbs because we were kind of the, the middleman in a sense. A, a toy company would contact a Lucasfilm and, and, and pay for the licensing to make a Yoda toothbrush. And then they would call us and we would make the three-dimensional copy of that. 
So before 3D printers existed, every toy and cookie jar and all that stuff was actually sculpted by hand by an artist. And that was our job. And what we would do is we would, we would sculpt it usually out of uh, a, a specific wax mixture that we came up with. can't tell you how it is. It was proprietary. Um, we, uh, and and out, of this, out of this wax, it was this material that would, that would take uh, an incredible amount of detail. And so we would, we would sculpt it out and we would make sure that, that every little wrinkle was precisely where it was supposed to be on Yoda's ancient and wise face. And then we would make sure that every millimeter of his little burlapy tunic had a burlapy texture on it. And then, and then we would make a silicon mold of that or like a rubber mold. And then you would pour a, 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 an acrylic mixture into that, that it was a liquid, and then as it, was, as it would harden, then, then you would take the mold off and you have a perfect little plastic duplicate of our wax sculpt. And then we would ship that usually to Hong Kong where they would knock out a couple hundred thousand copies of it uh, so that it could then be conveniently delivered to your floor via a Happy Meal box so that you would be granted the opportunity to painfully step on my creation in the middle of the night. You're welcome. Point being, the way a pattern or a mold works is that you pour the substance into it and the substance follows the path of least resistance, filling in the entirety of the mold until it takes the exact form and shape of that mold. That is what Paul says is happening to us. Moment to moment on a daily basis. In following the path of least resistance, we simply take on the form or the pattern of the world without even realizing it. And the gravest concern in that is not overt sins, but the manner of thinking of the world. We, we, if we don't understand, it's not just what we think, but the way we think and that that is formed by culture, formed by our family, formed by our sin. If we don't realize that, that means we can do a great job of avoiding all those really nasty sins while not realizing that we pursue the exact same worldly desires and self-exalting motivations as that person that we are so convinced that we are nothing like. I would argue that is why Paul can warn us, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The very fact that you are judging that person is evidence that you are still thinking the same way that they are. That man is the judge of all things and that our right standing with God is determined by how we act and what we do and do not do. That's why Paul says, if you're judging, then you're doing the same thing because the fact that you're judging is what is evidence of that. The more convinced that we are that we are not affected by this, the more deeply affected we are by it. Because it is only in allowing the Spirit to bring this to our attention, to point out where we are most deeply affected by this, that this formation can begin to happen and, and that we can ever hope to break out of the conformity to the world. And break out we must, church. We must break out of the mold that is conforming us into something or someone other than Christ. What we need is to be transformed. 
I, lo- I, I, tr- I love, I love uh, uh, words. Words are my jam. And, uh, and this Greek word for transformed is fantastic. Metamorphuste. That's just a fun one to say, right? It sounds like you're conjuring something up. And you could probably get, you don't need to bust out your lexicon to understand what that word means, right? You probably heard it. Metamorphosis. Right? So when you, when you think of this idea of being transformed, think of the butterfly emerging from the chrysalis. And it's not, a, it's not just a caterpillar with different colors. It has experienced a fundamental change in essential form or nature. That's what the definition is, an essential change, or a change in essential form or nature. It's not a minor adjustment. This is a very fundamental and radical change. It is not just, this is how I fit Jesus into my entirely worldly pursuits of comfort and honor and respect and affirmation and toys and hobbies and financial security. This is a, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me kind of a transformation. The way Paul says it in his letter to the Corinthians is, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, the prophet says it like this, God speaking through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So good. Peter tags on to that and he says he does this so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. We don't just cram Jesus into the existing pattern. We need a new pattern. We need a new mold. And it happens by the renewal of our mind. Renew a new mind, not just new ideas or new information, but a totally new way of thinking. Different formational habits that are different from the habits of the culture around me that are forming me. We are formed by our habits. Our habits, the things we do, even subconsciously, day in and day out, are shaping us and directing us. We know the answer can't just be new information because A, if that were going to work, it would have worked by now. And B, because Scripture tells us that that's nonsense. In Timothy, Paul, Paul warns Timothy that there, there are people who are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. He warns the Corinthians, knowledge alone just puffs up. Love is what builds up, but knowledge just adds to arrogance. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, Knowledge cannot be the answer because the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So no amount of information will help if the Spirit of God does not intervene. He alone provides the form of knowledge that we need in the way that we need it. Jesus himself warns it's not just knowledge in general or even specifically knowledge of the scriptures alone. 
Because he warns, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What we need is not just information, but the experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ and specifically his gospel. The true functional source of renewal in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives is the gospel. And Titus says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, which includes physical acts and works and activities, but also includes learning and acts of reason. See Philippians chapter 3. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and what? Renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians He goes on, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened according to the working of his great might that he worked out in Christ. When? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. The gospel, there it is again. Renewed by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. The gospel, the Father redeeming and adopting us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his uniting us with that through the power of the Holy Spirit is the source of our renewal and the thing that gives us, the only thing that gives us the power to break out of the mold of the world and transform our lives and the very way that we think. This is a really big deal. So, Robbie... I've been paying close attention to what you just said. And you said the Spirit of God has to do it, that he's already done that through the gospel. So if he's already accomplished that in Jesus and the Spirit is already applying that to my life, why am I still conformed to the mold of this world? Excellent question. I'm glad you asked. Two primary reasons, I would argue. Number one, because we constantly forget that all of that is true. We daily forget the gospel. First Peter, or Peter, rather, in his second letter, says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he gives this list of all the things that we should be actively making every effort to supplement our faith with. It's virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and ultimately love. And he goes on and says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in what? The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the knowledge that we are actually after. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Why do we lack this kind of formation in Christ? Because we have forgotten the gospel. Day in and day out, the pattern that we are conforming to makes us forget the reality of who God is and what he has done and who we are in him. Which leads us to number two. While we believe the gospel in principle, because we typically do not conform the pattern of our lives to the gospel, We continue to forget it day in and day out and continue to be formed by the world. We are 
trying to dry ourselves off while standing in the rain. First, we need to step out of the rain and then break out the towel, and we might see some success. Which brings us to solitude. The spiritual habit of solitude is what we're talking about this week. We need to shift from autopilot to manual controls. There, there are things that we do subconsciously, pre-consciously. They have been so ingrained in us as habit that we don't even realize we're doing them anymore. Think about when you were learning how to drive a car. Every single thing you did when you sat down in that seat, you thought about. Right? You're like, buckle the belt, 10 and 2. Check the mirrors. Put, put foot on the brake. Re- release hand from 2. Put hand on gear shift. Reverse. Check mirrors again. Look back. Check mirrors again. Right? Like you were crazy because you didn't want to back into a tree and you had no idea what you were doing. Now, sometimes you can pull into the parking lot at work and not ever even remember leaving your driveway because your mind was on something else. And that's so programmed into your brain, it's so subconscious that you're not even thinking about left turn, right turn, don't hit that kid, like you just did it. That's, that is how powerful our preconscious is and that is what we are doing in, in so many aspects of our lives that we don't realize. We need to get back to that intentional, mindful uh, 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 way of operating rather than just submitting to the habits that we're doing without thinking. We need to get back to the thinking stage. Peter started his statement with, make every effort, which leads me to believe that there is a certain degree of effort that is required. In, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the verse right before the one that we read, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, there's effort there, inspired and empowered by God's mercy, right? It is grace-driven, grace-empowered effort that is required to not be Conformed. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. There's intentionality and effort that is required in that. However, do you notice something interesting about these two commands? Do not be conformed and do not and, and do be transformed. Both of those things are passive. Those are both things that are happening to me. Not things that I'm doing, but things that are happening to me. I I can't transform myself. I need to be transformed. So what does this intentional effort look like? What does it say? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. The effort that I need to put in is not allowing this thing to happen to me so that this other thing is able to happen to me. If I am not making conscious, intentional, regular effort to not be formed by the world, then I am being conformed to it. And at the risk of mixing metaphors, since I'm pretty deep into this mold metaphor here, the, the stream is pulling us downstream. It is pulling us in the direction unless we are actively pushing against the current. And the direction it is always pulling us toward towards self, 
and the culture that we are in. And again, I'm not talking about these big overt sins that we're all afraid of or that we're all so quick to judge others for. What I'm talking about is underlying assumptions, presuppositions, ways of thinking that affect every one of us, which distort our view of one another, distorts our view of God, and distorts our interpretation of Scripture. We have to acknowledge American culture has shaped the way we think about life and Scripture. And I'm not singling out American culture. I'm talking about American culture because we live in America. If we were in India right now, I would be talking about the ways that Indian culture is shaping the way you view the world. When I'm in Haiti, I speak about Haitian cultural issues. Since we are not in either of those countries, neither of those countries are conforming us into their image. This is the one that we live in, and we need to acknowledge there are aspects of our culture that are forming how we understand one another and Scripture. Your family of origin, the family that you grew up in, for better or for worse, has created, has ingrained in you certain pre-conscious assumptions that affect how you view others and how you interpret Scripture. Sin that indwells in you and in me, and those distorted desires are forming you and me into something. And, and we must be active in not allowing that thing to happen so that this other thing that can happen takes place in our heart. That requires us to step out of the rain, to step out of the formation of the world long enough to be able to create some new habits centered around the gospel to allow us to be formed into Christ's image rather than the world's image. And solitude, I would argue, is one of the more powerful steps in that process. A few weeks ago, we talked about silence and the importance of taking a break from output, right? from adding to the noise in order to listen to God and to listen to others. This week, the, the issue is taking a break from input, a break from the noise, a break from all the information, from people, from podcasts, from social media, from news outlets, from books, from all of the input that we constantly take in, compiling more and more and more and more when we don't have any idea how to process or obey the information that we already have. Solitude is not me time. It's not a chance to tell everyone else to stop bothering me so that I can do what I really want to do. Finally get that time to catch up on those hobbies or those shows. It is not hunting or fishing or mountain biking or curling up on the couch with a good book. Those things are all great, but that's not what we're talking about. I love being outside. I love, I love mountain biking. I love, I, I love splitting a log with a mall like Pa Ingalls. That, that is delightfully rejuvenating to me. I love, because I work with my mind all the time, it is restful for me to work with my hands, and so I really enjoy that. And, and, and I genuinely oftentimes engage with God in a very beautiful and fruitful way when I'm doing that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about doing an activity that may or may not involve Jesus. Right? The disciples, after Jesus died and, 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 and was raised from the dead and they didn't really know what to do, all decided to go fishing. And I would argue not because they wanted to go spend time with God, but because they didn't know how to. 
As soon as Jesus appears on the beach, they all drop the nets and go and give him their undivided attention. That is what I'm talking about. This is about setting aside time where the only thing, the only goal is sitting with my Heavenly Father, being with the triune God. No side task, no other activity that is actually the reason that I'm out there, just me and my Father. Solitude is not really about relaxing, though it can be refreshing. Ultimately, it's where war is fought. Because it's a place of vulnerability. And in that vulnerability, it's an easy place for the enemy to make an assault. Jesus, after his longest period of solitude, that is when the enemy makes a full frontal assault on him. Solitude is also not just introvert heaven. right? Because I know some of you are going, this is real rich coming from you, Robbie, the hyper introvert. I know, I know. But this isn't just about being introverted. This is about taking specific intentional time to be with one person at the expense of all other people. Right? We need, remember, we need both. We need both the inhale and the exhale of these spiritual habits. We need the exhale of community and fellowship. It is absolutely biblically necessary. But we also need the inhale of solitude so that my intimate time with the Father is the thing that actually informs and fuels and directs my time with people. Scripture dictates that we need both. If we are unable to be with people or we are unable to be without people, both of those things are equally unhealthy. We need both. What solitude is, in solitude, we purposefully get away from all the voices that are shaping us and forming us into their image. We intentionally take a break from people and their expectations of us, some of which are healthy and appropriate and some of which are sinful and destructive. We get away from our dependence on them. We get away from the distraction that they can often be. We get away from entertainment and advertising that is constantly preaching to us a specific definition of what the good life is. We get away from podcasts and authors and various forms of influencers all vying for your attention, both needing your approval and trying to convince you that you need theirs. All these things are defining what life should look like, whether you realize it or not, and are conforming us to their image. It's only in taking a break from all of these voices, all of that input, long enough to hear what God is actually saying and what is actually coming out of your heart, that we begin to understand where I'm, I'm off the mark biblically, where my responses are not actually Christ-like, even if everybody around me agrees with them. where I might be listening to the wrong voices. See, the dangerous beauty of all the noise is that I can drown my heart out in it. I can pretend all is well. And if it starts to not feel well, I just turn up the noise so I don't have to hear my heart. In solitude, though, all of that scaffolding comes down. And all that's left is the actual building so I can acknowledge what I have been using to prop that building up. The hobbies, the people, the work, the information, the accomplishments, all those things that I am using to try to prop up my heart. 
I hear my own voice and can determine whether it actually sounds like Jesus or not. I hear God's voice and must acknowledge whether he agrees with the other voices that I have been listening to. Sound a little terrifying? Yeah. That's why most of us don't do it. Because that's terrifying. But why? Why have we convinced ourselves that pretending is better than healing? Most of us don't do this because we're afraid of it. And as a result, most of us don't ever experience the kind of metamorphosis that Paul is talking about. We're quick to dismiss it and we'll argue like, well, things like that are kind of extreme. They're not really necessary. If, that, if you need that, that's fine. I just don't need that. Listen, God incarnate needed that. All four Gospels address Jesus' regular habit of getting away from the crowd for strictly Trinity time. Jesus knew he needed to get away from the voices, away from all that formative input to, make, to, to continue to be aligned with the Father and the Spirit. God incarnate chose this rhythm. Surely our argument cannot be, oh, Jesus needed that, that's fine. I just don't need that. In the same way that our many words often are evidence of our doubt rather than our trust in God, our avoidance of solitude, time alone with just God, His Word, and God, and God, and God alone. Our avoidance of that is evidence of our lack of intimacy with God, not of our depth of intimacy with Him. I am so close to my wife, and our hearts are so aligned that I never have to or even want to be alone with her, ever, is not something that anyone in a healthy marriage ever said. I want to be alone with my bride. I love one-on-one -on -one time with my bride. I delight in that. I long for that. I don't want to just hear from other people how awesome she is, although I find that very encouraging. I want to experience how awesome she is, just the two of us. And I want that even more with my Jesus. At least, I want to want that even more. The goal of taking a break from all the voices and solitude with God is to align your heart with the heart of Jesus, to allow Him to transform you. And while a significant part of solitude is gaining a better understanding of yourself without all the smoke and mirrors, introspection is not the goal. It's not just sit and just think about yourself and all the things that are wrong with you and all that. that is, that's not helpful, right? Giving yourself an MRI every day is not going to fix any, everything or anything for that matter. It might even probably give you something. But to never get a checkup is just plain foolish. Right? Because if you never examine what's going on inside you, you'll never know that something might be eating you alive until it's too late. The goal is not just introspection, though that is something that will happen as you're doing that. 
The goal is aligning your heart with the heart of Jesus, to allow the Father to conform you into the image of His Son, rather than continuing to allow yourself to be conformed into the image of all of the inputs that you are taking in. No matter how positive they may seem, if they're not Jesus, they're not Jesus. Even if they're talking a lot about Jesus, they're still not Jesus. And if the gospel allows us to spend time with him directly, why would we, why would we take someone else's opinion of him as better? So what, what does this, getting very practical, what does this look like? It looks like setting aside time each day, each week, each month to unplug from the world and plug into your God. Right, this requires scheduling, being intentional, setting aside time, a specific, regular time where you set aside all the input, set aside the device, turn off the device. Don't even have it with you. Leave it in the car, in another room, keep it away from you. The device in your pocket is literally designed to keep your attention at all times. I read a book just for fun a few years ago that was about how to design your, mo- your mobile game to be neurologically addictive. Like they're not even subversive about it. They just come right out and say, oh yeah, this stuff is super addictive. That's how it's designed. We make more money off of you that way. Keep clicking. That's how it works. It's designed to do that. Social media apps and games are designed based on how slot machines work and what they do to you neurologically in order to make you want to keep picking up your phone because the more often they get your attention, the more money they make. Turn it off for a moment. Put away the device. Stop all of the input that is going into your brain and distracting you from experiencing intimacy with the God of glory. I try to take time every day. We as a family have one day of the week. My day off is Monday, and it is a tech-free day. We turn everything off. There is not a device on in our house. If you text me on a Monday or email me, forgive me, you're not going to hear from me until Tuesday because I'm not checking it. It's off. Because we just have to unplug from that. It's It's like a cleanse for my brain, and more importantly, for my soul. I try to take time each day to do that, to have intimacy with God. I take a significant amount of time each week, a couple hours or a day of the week that I take a couple hours in order to do that. And then once a month, I try to take an entire day, regularly scheduled in order to inhale so that I have something in my soul for the exhale. And I'll be honest with you, it's hard. Even after doing this for years, I still get ridiculously distracted. Ridiculously. During those extended times, those really long times, often the first like several hours is spent just wrestling with distraction. But it is so worth it because on the other side of that battle is typically my richest and most edifying time with God in weeks. I once spent two days by myself in a cabin in the woods, which I realize is the plot of like 40% of the horror movies that exist. But it seemed like a good idea at the time. But the goal was, I just want, it's just me and the Trinity, right? It's just, it's just going to be us. So I brought my Bible, I brought a notebook and a pen, and that's it. That's all my input. And I'm going to just be out here, I'm going to pray, I'm going to listen. That's, 
That's all I got. And if I had recorded this whole thing, I would have been able to put together for you a delightful little montage of the first, like, five hours, right? Me sitting on a log, bored and distracted. Me sitting on a bench on the porch, bored and distracted. Me sitting in a tree, bored and distracted. Me sitting on top of an abandoned tower that used to be for a zip line. So bored, so distracted. Cut back to me sitting on the bench on the porch again, experiencing an intimacy with my father that I never would have experienced if I had not taken the time to get away from all of the input and just put all of my effort into trying to engage with him and him alone. We aren't conjuring something up. It's not if you do this, God has to respond this way because I can't transform myself, but I have to get out of the rain to have any hope of drying off. I have to take a break if I want any hope of engaging my Father in that way. I challenge you, church, my family, I challenge you to acknowledge that the world around you is shaping you in ways that you're not even consciously aware of, conforming you into its image. I challenge you in a regular, specific, scheduled way to say no to all of the options for input that are constantly surrounding you and feeding you all the time. I challenge you to practice the discipline of joyfully missing out. Missing out on that amazing podcast on that hilarious show, on that awesome hobby, certainly on that corrosive social media and divisive video or blog post. Please miss out on that. In exchange for more Jesus, for more of your heavenly Father, for more of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you that we often can't even hear because of all of the noise. I challenge you to take regular, intentional steps to remove yourself from all that is conforming you into its image and experience the fundamental change in nature that comes from the Spirit of God reforming the very way that you think and what you desire so that you would desire what Jesus desires, that you would love who Jesus loves, that you would serve how Jesus serves, that you would give yourself in the way that Jesus gave himself. Because we allow ourselves to be changed by him, to be conformed into his image rather than anything and everything else so that he can reform us into the very image of Jesus. Church, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have made this even possible for us. It is astounding to me to even 
try to wrap my brain around the reality that you allow us to do this, that you, that you would go to such great lengths through your gospel to transform us, to make that even able to, uh, to be accessible to us, and then even more so that you would love us so much, that you would love us right where we are, but love us too much to let us stay where we are. So please, Father, please help us this week as we make efforts to spend time with you and you alone and meet us there. We know that you are always there. Be there in a tangible way that we would see what we are missing when we allow ourselves to be distracted. Jesus, let us experience what it is like to be a church as the the unbelievable, miraculous joy of watching one another look more and more and more like our Jesus day after day. We love you, Jesus. We need you. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.